Deirdre and Martin, good morning from San Diego to a very cold Cape Town, I believe. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. It's a, a delight to have you looking so cheerful on the other end of a Zoom call. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Bronwyn. It's, I feel delighted because it's a public holiday here in Cape Town in South I Africa. Know. Thank you for Thank you for making time out of Youth Day. I hope you've celebrated it appropriately. Yes, I have made my children do housework. <laughs> <laughs> That's the spirit. Not quite sure how politically correct that is, but go for it. Okay. <laughs> so Deja Anne, tell us a little bit about your story, about where you've come from, where you are right now, and then we'll get into our, our um, Spanish Inquisition after that. So I was born in Cape Town in 1976 uh, in South Africa. And so I have the privilege of and pain of experiencing both sides of growing up in the apartheid regime and then um, being a democratic baby in my adolescence. So uh, that makes for an interesting part of my story. Uh, growing up as a person of color in South Africa and all that that came with and not only uh, implicit racism but also uh, intercultural racism um, because of the ability to identify and reclassify yourself as white and there were fairer skin colors and there, there's an entire tale behind um color and then also growing up um and going to a private school where i was exposed i say exposed as though it's a flatter in the trees but it was it was a culture shock to to be in an environment that was very privileged and comparatively the other girls were prettier than me, smarter than me, whiter than me, richer than me. And it caused a huge identity crisis that spun me out in insecurities that I didn't even know I had. Um, and that started my desire, my strong desire to belong, to fit in at no matter what the cost was. And I think that's when I was politely invited to leave that school in grade 11. At other schools, they call that expulsion, but not at private schools. <laughs> it's an invitation you can't refuse. Exactly. Um, I went to, for my final year of school, I went to a co-ed school and there were boys there. And I had already developed a body dysmorphia and I was then, as I still am now, five foot nothing, um, <laughs> hoping for a miracle. And um, that's when I started out with my primary addiction, which was slimming tablets. Um, because I wanted to effectively, the bottom line is be loved. And what that translated to in my 17-year-old mind was to be desirable to be wanted to be attractive to be skinny and that progressed rapidly and within the space of three months i was taking up to 10 slimming tablets a day wow um 
and it worked <laughs> and lost tons of weight, but it also started a war in my mind around control um, and controlling how other people perceived me. And so what I was presenting on the outside was very different to what I was experiencing within myself. I um, thought I was not good enough. I thought I was just to sum it up, I was not enough in any way. Um, fraught with uh, with really deep seated insecurities, and um, I grew up in a dysfunctional home where there was domestic violence, there was addictions of all sorts, uh, codependency, and. To the outside world, it did not seem like we were rotting on the inside because as the title of my memoir um, speaks to, we don't talk about it ever. And what we don't talk about is anything. And we never spoke about anything that happened inside the house, certainly not to each other and certainly not to anyone outside. We just presented as this perfect family. Um, and I became adept at keeping secrets and I became adept at telling lies. And that was the foundation of my identity was to never let anyone know what was truly going on, um, whether that be a huge, cataclysmic violent event in my house or something that was happening to me such a and I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse as well but I think I could go into a war story about how there was a, the progression but um my addictions and afflictions they did progress uh they led me to toxic relationships, abusive relationships, a multitude of addictions. Um, if I could abuse the hell out of anything, I would. Um, and that included uh, people and substances and alcohol, which was ironic because growing up in an addicted household, I vowed I would never drink. But as soon as that wine hit my cells at 17, it just made perfect sense and felt like coming home. And I found the elixir um, and I found the escapism that I needed. So my story of addiction lead, led me to, in my 20s, through a very dysfunctional and toxic relationship, becoming an intravenous heroin addict. Um, and I was by and large a criminal. I would steal, I would, um, <laughs> I was going to soften the blow and say, borrow um, um <laughs> but i would steal i would defraud i would pawn things i i 
you know, so my, my grandmother's China and I still, um, I, yeah, committed credit card fraud. And by the time I was in my fourth year of heroin addiction, I was exhausted. Um, sure. As I was physiologically addicted, I, I was a walking zombie. I, I was so tired, like my bones, my soul, what was left of my soul because of how much I shamed myself for my addiction. Mm -hmm. I was so tired. And at the end of the day, all I had left to bargain with was my body. And I became a sex worker to support my addiction. Mm -hmm. um, that started a vicious cycle of shame mm -hmm. whereby I would ply my trade, as they say. Um, and then I would feel so deeply ashamed that I would need to use again and so on and so forth. Um, the cycle continued. And they say that secrets keep you sick. And by the end of my active addiction, I was dying on so many levels. Even physically, I'd been given six months to live because my organs were failing. Um, and uh, I was the walking dead. Uh, my entry into recovery was not voluntary <laughs> at all. I, I, I didn't embrace it. I did not want it because... Um, it would take this great anesthetic that I had found away. Um, but I was given the opportunity to go to a rehab. My, that would be my second rehab stint. And um, this place was different in that it was there that I discovered the power of speaking my truth. Mm -hmm. And in response there was no judgment uh in fact people i was saying the most shameful things or the things that i felt the most ashamed about and people were saying yeah i did that too i relate and i was like what <laughs> like where have you people been because addiction exists in isolation you know it's uh mm -hmm makes you feel that you're the only person uh, that, that is going through this. Um, and it also strips you of any hope, um, let alone self-respect and dignity. Uh, there was an incident um, which I refer to as my last convincer, which was quite horrific. And after that, um, I was, I remember holding what is a, quarter of heroin in my hand and saying to myself like if you continue to use you're going to die and it's not going to be one of those sudden deaths because mm. addiction is not going to be that kind to you you're going to suffer you're going to go through a hundred forms of hell and it's going to be slow and painful so that was option one. <laughs> and option two was to get sober. 
um, and defined recovery, which I did on the 1st of August 2004, which is over 17 years ago. Wow. Okay. I mean, <laughs> you and I have known each other for, for a, a good couple of years. I think that's the first time you've shared um, your story with me personally. Um, I, in, in a previous life, I have had some addicts in my life and I know how jealous a mistress addiction is and how as a person who loves an addict, um, how that feels. Um, I can only imagine that those who loved you must have been beside themselves as well. Did they ever, did they ever give up on you? Did they ever, were they constantly there? How did your family deal with that? I did a very good job of actively pushing away everybody that loved me through my behavior, which was unacceptable, intolerable, but completely out of my control. Um, yes, I alienated myself from absolutely everyone. The, the person that, that stuck to me like new Velker was my mom mm. and my addiction. And I've seen this subsequently in the work that I do is that, um, people who are trying to support or love or help, um, the, the addicted population, they get sick too. And I made my mother incredibly sick, incredibly anxious, incredibly worried. I think that she, every single day, she thought that I would die. And on some days she could have been right, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think people gave up on me, but I was given a choice because they kept trying to tell me the truth and I refused to hear the truth because if I knew the truth, I'd need to change what I was doing and I was not ready to do that. So I just pushed love away, which is ironic because that is what I had been craving my entire life. Exactly. Um, but it was my mother that who could ill afforded at the time who who had sent me to the rehabilitation the treatment center that changed everything thank goodness for mums hey? <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about your life subsequent to that i mean that's the the, the story up to that is is i guess part of what your your sharing on stage is right it's about how how terrible things were and how you got through that and how you got to that, as you said, your last convincer, which I think is a, a hell of a statement in and of itself. So you get into rehab. I mean, I, I, again, I have very limited experience of what that's like, having been on the outside, watching somebody go through that a couple of times. Um, I can only give you all the credit on earth to have got through that. Um, really it's i've seen the struggle um and not everybody makes it so so you know let's talk about after that um what happens to deja and she you get sober 17 years ago i mean how many hundreds of days is that 
how many you know that you must do you still keep count of how many I'm, days i'm good with words but i suck at math so i don't know how many <laughs> days it, it's it's a lot but it's it's a lot just consecutively one day at a time exactly um, exactly i i not going to paint a rosy picture of recovery because it is damn difficult mm. um mm. it is ask taking something away that that has been everything to a person and speaking so speaking personally taking everything that i knew the only thing that i believed was was working for me but um destroying me at the same time and that's a massive loss and mm. and it's a big ask um and it was there were days in in especially in the first year of recovery where it was literally like five minutes at a time just yeah. stay clean just just don't pick up just don't phone the dealer just don't don't ruin everything <laughs> and it was incredibly hard but um the people that i had found in the 12 step fellowships i mean they when when i went to my first meeting and i saw people were claiming that they were over a year clean i thought they were lying <laughs> i was like what <laughs> like that's ridiculous um, and anyone above that was definitely a psychopath. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but that is the community that um, that believed that I could do this um, and believed that I could stay sober and showed me how. It, it's really strange that when I came into recovery, it's almost as though there was, I, I had this amnestic experience where I didn't know how to live anymore or make mm. decisions mm. um it was crazy I was uh I had an amazing sponsor but I would I would I would phone her up and I'd be like like coke zero or coke light you know <laughs> because I, did, I wasn't quite sure if I was making the right decision and she she was very patient with me until she was like you know, just just get a milkshake, <laughs> and I was like, I'm I'm happy with that decision, but um, it is it is recovery is learning how to live again, but it is not just about sobriety, you know, like uh, the using of substances or alcohol or process addictions, eating disorders, gambling, sex relationships. Those are the symptoms of of something else. You know, that's that's what everybody sees. Um, and so the process is, yes, it was abstinence, but I had to change. I had to change my thinking, my belief systems, the way um, my relationship with myself. Um, and then that informed my relationship with everyone else and everything else. So, um, and just because I got sober doesn't mean I wasn't so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I was crazy before and using a lot of drugs, but I was now sober and crazy. And so, um, which is, it's a passion of mine um, in the work that I do is about 
um, mental health issues and and trauma and how they are related to addiction and that those have to be addressed as all simultaneously um, because I still even though I was sober and this is two years into my sobriety I made some bad life choices uh, I'm talking about marriage here. <laughs> so even though I was sober, I was still, because I hadn't done the work, I was still making the same decisions. I was still caught in the same patterns. I was still being attracted to the same type of toxic relationship. Um, and so, so recovery has given me my life back and and so much more but there are huge struggles that within recovery that people don't talk about and i'm quite open about it and i'm i'm not confining this to the 12-step process because i believe that there are other ways of of obtaining of and sustaining sobriety but it's just to that it hurt just as much when I was sober, if not more, because mm. I had nothing to take the pain away. Mm. I was so, going to ask you about that. So, if you so you spoke about you spoke about this huge loss of this of this anesthetic that you'd had, um, and and obviously you were facing this daunting idea that somebody had been sober for a year. So, people grieve loss. Right. Mm -hmm. So you, I assume that you grieved for that for the loss of of this thing that had been such a winning formula for you. And I use winning formula. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the was there one thought that kept you going? That thought, well, okay, that the it's a conscious choice every day to continue with this grief. You know, those of us who grieve the loss of a loved one have no choice in that. It's 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 a thing they died, you you carry on living, you put one step in front of the other. Your choice was a daily one to continue to grieve. Um, what was there one thought that kept you going? That was there one thing that was like, okay, that one thing is worth this daily choice to grieve and get through this? So in the beginning, I had to get really hard ass and militants on myself. And the formula was, there's Rayanne Martin, if you used, you will die. Like you will drop down dead on the floor. <laughs> and that worked for a year. Wow, <laughs> it it okay. really helped me for my first year. Um, I had to believe that because I could not entertain um, using on the weekend or social using or recreational using or drinking or I, I needed to be, I needed to believe that. And then as I started, as I started amassing new things in my life, like a job and relationships and the healthy ones and, <laughs> <laughs> and friendships. And, you know, uh, as the years progressed, my relationships with my family started healing. And then it became more about am I willing to lose all of this mm. for that? Am I willing mm. to take that gamble? Mm. And 
um, as I am now, which is 17 and a half years sober, I have been blessed with, created, I, I don't know what, what the accurate word is, I, but my life is so full of meaning and, and value and, and purpose that that is not worth a mojito. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Need we say more? Okay, so let, let's talk about let's talk about your life at the moment. So you are you 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 went back to school. Clearly, you got your degree. You're now this therapist who's helping other people deal with their addictions. Um, tell us a little bit about your life now. So the the degree I didn't actually go back to school because I I went to university for the first time when I was forty. I'd been accepted when I matriculated to uh, University of Cape Town, but I actually turned down my place because wow. of fear of failure and um, of 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 my insecurities. I turned down my place, and also, um, if we're being honest here, I like the freedom of being able to just drink and use <laughs> and so um, without responsibilities um, and uh, so I um, I have been counseling for over 14 years but I had the opportunity I I gained admission to UCT in 2018 without an undergraduate degree um, wow on recognition of prior learning alone. And in two years, I obtained my postgraduate, um, postgraduate, oh, I've forgotten, postgraduate uh, certification, qualification, that's word. In 2000, yes, yeah, sorry, in 2019, I, I obtained my postgraduate qualification from the University of Cape Town. Um, and before before that, I thought, oh, the piece of paper is not important, you know. Mm. But it was COVID. It was lockdown. There was no graduation ceremony, and there's just a picture of me standing on a completely deserted jammy steps, holding that piece of paper and grinning like an idiot. <laughs> I had managed to do that with a toddler and a tween and a full time practice. And that's where I am now. Um, I'm in private practice. I work as um, a counselor um, and I work in the areas of addiction and mental health um, and trauma. And I work with adolescents and adults. And I'm also a, a dialectical behavioral therapy facilitator, which is a fancy way of saying I teach people how to calm the bleep down uh, so. wow okay <laughs> I have a couple of uh, clients for you <laughs> um and and while I was so, so it was a big year 2018 because I'm congratulations that's it's a heavy got a child who's still using a dummy and another one who's growing boobs <laughs> and I have my practice and I I wrote a book um I wrote my memoir uh 
I it had been a, a long buildup, but I wrote it in the bulk of it in three months because I felt compelled to tell my story. I felt compelled to speak my truth. Um, and I felt that in doing so, in some way, I would break the cycle for my daughters mm. and not pass on a legacy that I had no right to pass on to them without mm. their permission. Mm. Um, and I did that. And that was amazing. And I have um, my writing career is. I like, you know, I don't even I want to call it a side hustle but it's actually my superpower <laughs> I have a day job and then I have a superpower and it's writing but it's um so I've been published uh eight times subsequently in anthologies or corporate annuals or um short story collections um as well as um yeah opinion pieces um guest blogging so I still I have a fiery relationship with the English language and so I um have quite a successful writing career as well. Well that's and, amazing. And okay. quite a successful speaking career too, just by the way, while we while we add it. Okay. <laughs> how how is how, I mean obviously COVID was was not great news for those of us in the speaking industry. She said Let us not yeah. speak of the war. Yes. <laughs> So how, how, I mean, obviously you had your writing, um, you, you were still doing, I presume, um, uh, virtual talks and things like that. And I know that very slowly in South Africa, we're seeing green shoots of in-person um, events happening again, which is wildly exciting for us, obviously. Um, so tell us a little bit about, so obviously you, your, your talk is based on, on your story and and it's, would you determine it as a, a motivational or an inspirational talk? How would you, how would you describe it? I'm not entirely sure if, the, what is the difference? <laughs> I should so, know this, right? <laughs> so for me, a motivational talk is like somebody who's, who's kind of rah-rah, you can do this, you know, the power of positive thinking, um, you know, all of that. And an inspirational speaker is somebody who possibly talks about it from a lived experience, um, who who isn't going to, you know, be the rah-rah thing. It's more of an you you're inspiring people more than motivating them i think that there is a there is a, a, a it's it might be semantics but it's i think there is an energetic difference in in the delivery yeah, at least i understand that and i think um the the talks that i've i have given or that i give have evolved since i first started public speaking so i would class would have straight up classified myself as an inspirational speaker in 2018 mm. um, and uh, to to a great extent I, I still am an inspirational speaker but what I've learned is that inspiration and and if my truth and telling my story resonates with just one person then yay but inspiration um, has a very short shelf life 
Um, and so my talks have also become more um, informative and educational, especially my talks to um, universities and my talks to high schools. Uh, I found in that just speaking my truth was enough, but I didn't just want to inspire people and and leave them with this huge asset, which is hope. Um, but I wanted to help people as well. And to mm. say that, because I could tell my story and say, and, and ta-da, jazz hands, look how everything's turned out. That's fantastic. But there, I knew that in every audience that I addressed, albeit in person or virtually, that someone someone was struggling and it wasn't enough just to say tada jazz hands and my life is peachy and nice mm. to meet you um it became more solutions focused so with corporates i offered um follow-up interventions for people who identified with this, the topics that i address in my talks which is around adversity and around resilience, but the the threads that run through it is around things such as addiction and trauma and mental health issues and GBV. And um, it was important for me to not just show up and tell my story and then leave people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I still make myself very accessible. And so it's expanded into being into doing workshops at schools around with no disrespect to the Department of Education, but things that I feel are sorely lacking in the curriculum. Um, things such as boundaries, healthy relationships, um, toxic relationships, mm. uh, consent, and um, and things such as uh, self-defeating behaviors, which uh, I found in adolescents especially, are more about the system that they're in and they're more about a reaction to something um, than they are about an actual addiction. And so uh, talking about feelings, it is shocking how many of our young people cannot even identify mm -hmm. fundamental feelings, let alone mm -hmm. know how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So I can, I can attest to that, having a 14-year-old myself. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I tend to think that I'm a fairly enlightened mom because of the amazing people that I get to work with and get to interact with and, and the, the wealth of information and experience that I've been exposed to via all of you amazing people. So I've tried to always like help and give perspectives based on what you guys share with me even now even notwithstanding all of that we still struggle mm -hmm. to name our feelings to to like it, it's it, I, I don't know how to fix that so i think if you're doing that at at at, at the school level yeah. you are you are a saint among human <laughs> beings mom <laughs> everywhere are going please deja and can i give you my number this is the school you know i can see that happening everywhere because it's tough i think even even as a it took me a long time i mean i was in i was in therapy was 40 before i could even name my feelings so you know that's that's it's huge it's huge absolutely and so so 
there's the work that I do with adolescents, which is a huge passion of mine, but also with with adults and um, not just identifying feelings, but for people to 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 acknowledge the, their pain and their reality. And, you know, it, it's not I'm not asking people to raise their hands and go, yes, I'm addicted to so and so and so. But if it resonates um, and offers hope, um, albeit somebody who has experienced trauma um, or somebody who is um, experiencing mental health issues and vulnerabilities, which is widespread post-COVID. I mean, the statistics Mm. are just staggering how many people are are struggling um, with mental health vulnerabilities. But... um, with the adults also your your feelings words <laughs> like you know teaching feelings words to adults um so, <laughs> so <laughs> like happy sad mad <laughs> you know kind of like um <laughs> it's but so so it's about um about also destigmatizing asking for help Part of the purpose of, of the talks that I give is to destigmatize these issues that I talk about. And uh, because there's still so much shame and stigma around. Uh, and I always go back to this that, like, in, in the Causa culture, there is no word for depression. Um, so to show you that, that, that it's not even acknowledged. And so, um, to not just offer hope, but to 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 go beyond that, you know, and to say that yes, there's hope, but this is how it's done, mm-hmm. and that that is my inherent hope in the talks that I give is that that there is follow up with schools and universities and corporates to say okay, you said there was a way we can fix this. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. you know, and and so I've had corporates ask me to come do like vision boards and goal settings. And I'm like, yeah, but do the people that work for your company actually get along? Because <laughs> how can they work towards goals together if they don't know how to speak to one another or meet each other's needs? So it's definitely been an evolution of from, you know, the way that, what I used to speak about a few years ago to what I'm speaking about now, but um, okay. So if you if you so my job is to is 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 to almost forgive me, but pigeonhole you into somebody will call us and go, we're having an event or a conference and our theme is this, and who would you recommend, right? So help me to help you get in front of the audiences that need to hear you most who what is what are the themes that we could say Deja Ann addresses so when they when they call we can say right these are these are these are the things that would be best suited these are the these are the audiences these are the events who who would who would those be so uh not discounting my story entirely so addiction recovery mental health issues gbv trauma adversity, resilience, purpose, um, hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. right. I'm such a hope a merchant, few. honestly. <laughs> Listen, we're all hope merchants in this industry. That's if there, we did, if there was no such but thing as need for hope. Just change and, and 
and this is true for me and i've seen it in the people that i've i've been privileged to work with is um is the possibility of change and and finding your purpose through that change mm. Mm. cool that's a really profound message so now i'm looking at the time and i know that you have to go and fetch your your 14 year old imminently I'm I'm sure she she won't mind if I was like 15 minutes late. So. <laughs> I don't want to keep you because I know that uh, 14 year olds can get even more eye roly if mommy keeps them waiting. So. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> okay. I'm just you. looking through our, our usual meet the speaker questions and we've actually covered most of them already. There's a couple of random ones here, which just to bring a little bit of uh, um, a smile. Yeah. So <laughs> Uh, who is your celebrity crush? <laughs> um, my celebrity crush is current, like currently? Currently. Um, why am I not crushing hard on someone right now? <laughs> <laughs> I clearly am not watching enough TV or TV, something. right? Okay. Um, Which is the next question? Is that what are you currently watching on TV? So obviously um, nothing. <laughs> no, no. I'm actually what I'm currently watching on TV is um, Anatomy of a Scandal. Okay. I believe that's. I believe it's really good. I need to. Actually, yes. I think we. It's on our list. I don't think we've got to it yet. Okay. So. Outside of work, what's your favorite thing to do? Outside of changing the world and helping moms of 14 year olds <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> what's your favorite thing to do? It's actually to spend time with my girls. Hmm. Um, but I do also enjoy art um, and not like fine art. I'm talking like chubby crayons and like, mm. <laughs> but, but uh, creative expression. Um, now that we can go to the theater, I can go to the theater because mm. um, I do so love the drama, and um, <laughs> and I love hanging out with with. Um, I'd love to. Think of myself as a lady who lunches, but I work. So, but I love hanging out with my friends, and I love hanging out with my husband, and I love food, food, mm. Mm. food, 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 food. Okay, so then that's another thing. Like, what <clears throat> do you cook? Are you? Are, do you? Do you hang out in the kitchen? If you do, no, no. Shaking no, I'm, on, I'm. I'm very much a periphery of the kitchen kind of girl. Okay. So it's eating the food, not cooking the food. Okay, good to know. I do like I do love to cook, but I I I rebel against uh, the um, expectation of needing to provide a meal for people every night. <laughs> Me too. That's why I married Duncan. No, no, that's why I married Duncan. Duncan to make sure that we are fed and watered all the time. Yes, I have one of those too. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Exactly. <laughs> it's all about those healthy relationships, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, your biggest pet peeve, like what's the thing that drives you absolutely bonkers? Uh, repetitive sounds, uh, taps dripping, uh, uh, like drilling, uh, any hammering, anything repetitive over and over again. Oh, I can't 
stand it. It actually cracks my psyche. And so, and so watching Barney videos when Bella oh, was little didn't drive you mad? <laughs> oh, I have, I have a six-year-old and she has headphones <laughs> because a shrill, shrill animated voices also drives me up the wall. Mm -hmm. I'm with you in that movie. Absolutely. Okay. So what's, what, what, uh, obviously there are books on your nightstand, right? So what kind of, what is, what is the book that you're currently reading <clears throat> and what's the one that you really want to get to next, but may not have time to? So I'm currently rereading uh, Women Who Run With the Wolves. Yes, love that one. Amazing book. And I read it a few years ago and rereading it is an entirely different experience now at the tender age of 45. But it's a <laughs> fabulous book. And um, what I'm dying to get my hands on is Viola Davis's autobiography. Mm -hmm. Can't wait. Um, it's sold out everywhere. So... I've got it on order. <laughs> mm. I'm sure that's going to be quite something. I, th I don't think, I don't think, I think, mm, does, is it not on Kindle in South Africa? Can't you get it as a, or are you a book book girl? I am a traditionalist. <laughs> so page, pages that I can turn and spines that yes. I can crack. Yes, yes, that is very satisfying to me. Yes, me too. I'm also a book book girl. I think one of the toughest things to do in the last year, apart from, um, <clears throat> changing continents, changing hemispheres, changing cultures was having to let go of my library oh. because we couldn't, you know, so now, now the upside is that I need to, I've got a list of what absolutely has to be restocked. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like rediscovering all those, oh yes, I need those, yeah, okay, we need to do this. It doesn't matter if I haven't touched it in 20 years, it needs to be on oh, the shelf. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. I will help you shop for that if you like. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so um, right, the books we've covered. <clears throat> is there a quote that you is that that you live by? And, and I have a few which are different, applicable in different situations. Like my favorite one is "Don't work with assholes." Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's on the bottom of my signature and, and I'm always a little bit uh, I, I do pause for thought when I send it to a new client but then I'm thinking but if they're an arsehole I don't want to work with them anyway so it's okay you know and if they don't see the humor in that well then they're not my people so it's, it's kind of a like a red velvet like Michael yeah. Port talks about having the, the red the red velvet um uh, thing like the red carpets, you know, when they you open somebody, yep. I don't know, he has a particular way to describe it. That's kind of my red velvet thing. So if, if they're going to be offended by me saying I don't want to work with ourselves, then they're probably not going to want to work <laughs> with me. So that's, but what's yours? What's love, the thing that, that, that I love that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I want to put that as my signature now. <laughs> I'll send it to you. <laughs> but, but, but with the, with the, the, the population I work with, I think that might not be a good idea. <laughs> yes, um, okay. It's all about context, there, guys. <laughs> there, there, um, there's a Maya Angelou quote. Um, well, there's a Maya Angelou poem. And uh, I have a verse of it tattooed on my, my, my back. And it is... Um, Every stanza ends in still I rise. Mm. 
till I rise. Mm. Um, and the mantras that I work within my within my own life and within my practice, so there is hope always, and uh, speak your truth. Mm. And the quote that gets me through a lot of dark times and actually comes from from Bill W who was the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous and it is believe more deeply hold your face up to the light even though for a moment you cannot see that's beautiful sure oh my gosh okay so I think that on that note that's a uh, a perfect place to say thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah. Where can we get hold of your books uh, or your book? Where, well, I assume that more than one <laughs> copy is available. So where do uh, we get hold of them? It's on Amazon and uh, more in South Africa. It's on Loot and it's on Take a Lot, but it's on. It's available as a as a paperback and a and on Kindle on Amazon. Cool. Okay. And, and then, of course, if... sorry, yeah. It's, and then no. all, all the other books I've contributed to are in some way connected to them. So, <laughs> so to read more of my writing. Okay. So if you can send me a list of where, what, what other things that you've contributed to, we'll oh, post that. We'll post that in the in the the comments below this um, video and get you some some more eyes on the work that, that <laughs> needs to be seen and of course if, exactly and and of course you know if anybody wants to book you to come and speak um obviously you are available um given your that's actually probably a good question how how available are you to speak i mean you, you have this full-time practice you know is it is it how busy how many months in advance should we try and book you <clears throat> Ronman, i will make the time if i am booked. <laughs> Excellent. That's a great answer. Pleasure, <laughs> Anne. Thank you so much. This has been such a delight of a talk. You've, Thank you so much. That's my morning so much uh, lighter. <laughs> and I am so grateful for your time. Please go and fetch Thank your you. young lady and keep her oh, safe okay. and uh, keep the earphones on the baby. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm really, really excited to be working with you guys again. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.